This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Excuse Me, Your Life is Waiting, A Bridge from Addiction to Early Recovery, and the author is Robert Boych, and Robert joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Robert. Hi, Steve. How are you doing today? Well, this is a book of change. This is a book about, I guess, finding your life and finally deciding that you're going to conquer the addiction of alcohol and other kinds of abuse, which you've gone through, and I guess it's ever ongoing throughout a person's life. Why did you write the book, Robert? Well, I I started journaling as part of my recovery process. Uh, it just was a cathartic way for me to get some of the stuff out that was troubling me. And uh, originally, I never had any intention of uh, publishing, uh, you know, any of this stuff, any of my writings. It was, it was all personal. I would share it with counselors and uh, some of my uh, rehab groups, and I'd share it in 12-step meetings. And uh, it was one of my counselors who came up with the idea for the book uh, about, about three, four weeks into recovery. And it was his suggestion, and it was pretty simple. Uh, you know, he thought some of the stuff was good and could help someone that was new in recovery and uh, hopefully get them on the right track. Your goal to write a book would be to appeal to the newcomer to recovery, the addict or alcoholic, the newcomer. Yeah, that's right, Steve. Uh, there, there's so many changes involved. You know, I, I'm speaking for myself, but it's, you know, one lifestyle that I've, I've lived with for, for many, many years. I started hearing things. I started people would tell me, "You've got to do it this way. Uh, you've got to make these changes." And I started examining some of those changes and, and writing about them, uh, like acceptance or control, uh, gratitude. I, I'd sit down and I'd write three, four pages about some of these things and, uh, and really brainstorm it. And then I try to apply them to everyday situations. Uh, so I tried to keep it simple to where. Someone who's just starting on their road to recovery, uh, you know, maybe it's a little bit of a roadmap. It kind of it, it, it explains some of these new concepts and tools that they're hearing about early on. So this isn't reinventing the wheel, so to speak. The the 12-step program has been out there a long time, but uh, you're trying to do it in a very personal way. Absolutely, yeah. And in fact, in the introduction of the book, uh, I know there's a passage in there where I, I take no credit for it. Any of the tools, uh, you know, that I talk about in the, in the book, uh, I'm just trying to pass on what was passed on to me and try to do it in a way that's uh, easy to understand and, and, you know, and with some real-life examples of how I implemented some of these tools. Because a lot of addicts, really, or maybe all of addicts, really have the same things in common. Oh, yes. Uh, there's so many similarities, which... When we're out there, when we're active in our, in our alcoholism or our, our addiction, it's, it's quite common for us to feel like we're unique, uh, that uh, you know, the other person uh, doesn't understand where we're coming from or what we have to deal with or what we've done. 
But when we get into these programs, we realize that, uh, you know, we're no different than, than everybody else in the room with us. Uh, and he was really explained well to me the other day. You know, it's a me program, uh, a we program. When I was out there uh, actively abusing alcohol and drugs, you know, there were a lot of instances where someone would come to me and tell me, you have to change. You have to do this different. You can't keep doing what you're doing. Well, that just didn't resonate with me. But uh, when you get in a good program of recovery, you start going to 12-step meetings, that, that you part is taken away. It's we. I did that. I understand where you're coming from. So it's really a group of people working together. And uh, it's a wonderful support group. And it's, uh, you know, as far as I know, it's the most successful way to try to beat one of these addictions. The few lines to a poem that I have remembered all these years, no man is an island, no man stands alone. I guess that sums it up. Absolutely. When we know we're not alone, we have a whole lot more courage. Yeah, and, you know, when we can share our problems, you know, we're cutting them in half right off the get-go. You know, I know for me personally, there were so many times where I just sat there and I tried to hold it all in. I tried to take care of it on my own. Uh, and it was, I was losing the battle. I needed help, and I needed help from people who understood what I was going through, who had been where I had been, and were at a place where I wanted to get to. Uh, I guess that's a good way to sum it up. How many years were you in, you know, in the, uh, in the very depths of addiction? Oh, boy. I started... You know, drinking and experimenting with with uh, various drugs when I was in high school, and you know, I, I just turned fifty, so that's back in the seventies, and it seemed like a lot of people were doing it. Uh, I continued, and it would escalate. Uh, there would be times when it, I wasn't as bad. I mean, I always drink. Uh, some of the other drugs, you know, I'd cut back or curtail my use for a while. And, you know, I went to school, I've got several degrees, so I could convince myself that, you know, I've got things under control. I'm not doing too bad. You know, there'd be the occasional negative consequence, whether it be uh, a running with the law, DUI, a fight with a friend or a wife, or just missing an appointment. You know, all these things in the past, I would just be able to tell myself, well, you know, that's normal, that happens, or it'll be better next time. But, you know, things just started getting worse. then towards the end, it was uh, it was really bad. Uh, the last year and a half or so, you know, I became completely isolated. Uh, I'd given up on work. I'd given up on everything. Uh, and it just you know, one day you wake up going, "How did I get here?" And uh, even at that point, it still wasn't enough to make the change. It, it took a little more pain before I was ready to take some action. And most of my adult life, in your book, you have a chapter. Titled Honesty. Yes, uh, that was a first real step for me. In, in fact, uh, early on, I'd actually, I hadn't stopped using it. I started journaling about a week or ten days before I quit doing drugs. About three or four weeks before I stopped drinking. And uh, I went over to Europe to get away from everything. Uh, my wife had entered a rehab program about 40 days prior to my last drink. But I was on my own, and I was just journaling and writing, and I started putting down all the things I'd done to my family, to my wife, to my children, to my parents, to my siblings, and really started examining and you know examining 
how I, I'd been lying to myself about so much stuff. Uh, I, I guess the old standard line is, it's my life, I can, you know, I'm not hurting anybody, I can do what I want. And, you know, at some point there in the first week, 10 days before I got sober, I realized how much harm I was doing. And uh, that was the first step, trying to be honest with myself about my situation. You know, now I, I try to honestly approach every every decision I make in my life. Uh, you know, I'm not perfect. I still make a lot of mistakes, but I seem to be getting the big issues, you know, getting them correct. Uh, it just, it's, it's a nice change. And the, the time when you finally, I don't know what to call it, the reunion, the coming back together of you and your brother. Oh, yeah. Uh, that... That was such an emotional moment. Uh, I've got a younger brother, like 22 months, and we were close as could be all through life. Uh, obviously, when we were younger, but uh, even as we you know, went our separate ways, he works on one side of the country, I'm on the other, but we were always there for each other. But the last year or so, year and a half, of my active addiction, I had shut everybody out of my life. I wouldn't talk to anybody. I, I didn't want to because they had nothing to say that I wanted to hear. And about two, three months into my sobriety, uh, I went out to San Francisco to reconnect with my brother. I, I didn't even talk to him on the phone. I didn't know what to say. My mom facilitated the meeting, set it up. I went out there, and uh, we were going to meet at a uh, sidewalk cafe. And uh, I just remember you know, he came walking up the street, and he just started crying. His tears streaming down his face. Uh, neither one of us could talk. We just hugged, and it, it was a long hug. And, you know, at that moment, I realized how much I had put him through in, in, the, in my entire family. It was an amazing moment that I, I'll never forget. I never want to forget some of the things I did and where I put people, because it's always a good reminder if I ever find myself in a position where I think that maybe I can have a drink. Uh, maybe I can have a hit off of a, a joint or something like that. You know, what harm can it do? I, I got to remember where I was and, and how quickly I could get back there. Yeah, that was a real special moment for me. One of the titles of one of your chapters is Living in the Moment. Comment on oh, that. Oh, boy. Living in the Moment. That's, if some people tell me, now, where else can you live? That's, that's where you are. Uh, the past... The past is the past. It's history, and there's nothing I can do about what's transpired in the past. You know, it used to be that I'd sit and worry about what I did. Uh, I'd form resentments over interactions with people and, the, you know, the way things worked out. Uh, or I'd just freak out about the future. What's going to happen tomorrow? Is this, you know, I just, instead of just one, worrying about what's going on in front of me right now, where my feet are, because when I take care of that, Things have a better tendency of working out, uh, you know, down the road. And one thing I found is so many times in the past that I would worry about things that never came into fruition anyway. You know, and also when I'm worried about what happened in the past or what's going to happen tomorrow, I tend to miss what's going on around me at any given moment, you know, right at that time. You know, especially with, with I've got little ones and, uh, you know, I missed a lot, a lot of uh, special moments that first year of my son's life because I was too worried about what was going to happen tomorrow. And now I just like to focus on what's right in front of me. You say that an addict only has to change one thing. This sounds real, you know, encouraging. Only one thing, and then you say everything. That yeah, almost I, sounds impossible. Uh, it's <laughs> everything. Not, it's 
not impossible. Uh, yeah, I had that same feeling. I was sitting in a, in a, in a rehab uh, session, in a group session, when the counselor said that. You only have to change one thing. And you can hear the whole group kind of, oh, you know, they took in a deep breath, like, well, this isn't going to be too bad. And, you know, then he told us it's everything. And I guess what, what that means is i got to change the way I approach life. I've been approaching life differently. I've been dealing, I, I deal with life differently now. Uh, you know, i got to change the person who I am, the way I think of things, and the way I act. It's more than just removing certain people and places from, from my, my regiment. You know, a lot of people have that misconception that if I stay away from this guy or this person or I don't hang out in this bar, then i got the problem with. But you know, speaking for me, which like, I can only talk for myself, but it was deeper than that. It, it, was, it was problems I had inside just dealing with life. So i got to change my approach to life. And uh, these programs have given me tools that help me to do that. And I tell you what, it's it's just it's just amazing. Uh, the reduced stress level, the way I approach my daily routine, uh, it's, it's it's amazing. Uh, I mean, it, I'm really thankful that things turned out the way I did. That I developed this problem, or I would never be able to live the life that I'm living today. You know, some people will have a hard time grasping that, but it's an amazing, amazing feeling. How important is it to laugh? To laugh? To laugh. Oh, boy. You got to laugh. I mean, if you take life... I mean, this is very serious business. doesn't sound like you should be laughing. Oh, it it, it is. But I look think of some of the things I did, some of the places I put myself. You know, there was nothing funny about it at the time. But now to look back on it, that, yeah, boy, I did that. What what was I thinking? You know, the answer is pretty simple. I was just thinking about myself. Uh, addicts and alcoholics are basically self-centered. We're selfish. We want things our way, and we want them our way now. You know, so unless it facilitated me getting what I want, getting my drink, staying high, I didn't really care about it. So you, you know, with that type of uh, mindset, you get into some pretty, pretty nasty situations. You know, now looking back on it, uh, you gotta laugh. I mean, I think you go crazy if you don't. What about the? chapter that you titled life isn't fair what do you expect we can't deal with it life isn't fair yeah you know there's ups and downs and uh, and uh i guess maybe it's like a football game or something there's good calls and there's bad calls you don't know whether it's going to be fair till uh you know to the final whistle blows but you know i've had i've had some bad breaks i guess you could call them but i've had a lot of good ones too but you know stuff i guess the the the, the, the real issue is is things happen. Things happen in life, and we've got to deal with them because we really don't have any other choice. And, you know, it kind of goes back to living in the moment and not dwelling on the past. If something's happened, I can't change what, what's already transpired. All I can do is, is accept it, and if there's something I can do to make the situation better moving forward, then I can take that action. But, uh, you know, I can't worry about what, what happened. As we conclude this conversation, comment on this one statement that you have in your book. The man I was drank. The man I was will drink again. I have to change the man. I love that passage. Uh, that's, uh, and that's something, you know, I, I, once again, I take no credit for. I attribute that to a, a good friend of mine in uh, my 12-step meeting. And I, I think it kind of goes hand in hand with an addict who only has to do one thing, and that's change everything. I've got to change the way I approach life and the way I deal with life. 
And that's changing, that's changing the man. Simply removing the alcohol or the drugs, that's not going to do it for me. Not, not, not for this alcoholic addict. I had to go in and, and, and just change the way, to change the way I deal with life, the way I approach life. And, you know, if I do that, I got a chance. And, and I can only do that on a daily basis, one day at a time, day in the moment. Robert, tell us how to get your book. Uh, the book's available through iUniverse on, on the web, Barnes & Noble, uh, Amazon, Borders. Uh, I also have a website, rwboyce.com. Uh, any one of those locations, you can log on and, and get a copy of it. On my website also, there's the email address. If anybody has any questions, if anybody's out there struggling with a problem, I want them to know, email me, and I will, I will get back to you. Because, uh, like, uh, like we said earlier, I, I wrote this to help people, a way to give something back. One person, if I can help one person, you know, then I've succeeded. That was rwboich.com. Boich spelled B-O-I-C-H. Thank you, Robert. Thank you for being on iUniverse Radio. Thank you, Steve. That was Robert Boich. He is the author of his book, Excuse Me, Your Life is Waiting, A Bridge from Addiction to Early Recovery. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. East Texas Meals on Wheels needs your help. For the first time in 35 years, Meals on Wheels has a waiting list for meals. Currently, we serve more than 3,500 meals per day. With the help of donors and volunteers, we can eliminate the waiting list and serve more meals and ensure all who need a hot, nutritious meal are served. You can call our offices toll-free at 1-800-451-2912 to find out more about how you can help. You can also visit our website at www.mealsonwheelseasttexas.org. Again, toll-free at 1-800-451-2912 or visit us on the web at www.mealsonwheelseasttexas.org. After all, when a person needs a meal, they need it today, not tomorrow. Thank you for helping Meals on Wheels. Saturdays on toginap.com. It's Author Talk. Get the story behind the story on fiction and literature, graphic novels, horror, mystery and crime novels, romance, science fiction and fantasy, westerns, history, humor, inspiration, and every genre. It's all on Author Talk. You'll get to hear new authors talk about their books. Take the opportunity to hear insights on what inspired them to write it. It's called Author Talk on Toginet.com. And it's presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their book around the world. Author House has assisted more than 30,000 authors, producing over 40,000 titles. Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen, every Saturday on Toginet.com. Radio with a cutting edge. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Started to record in three, two, one. The title—that's <clears throat> why we edit. <laughs> the title of the book: Moriak, a novel of the Russian Revolution. 
And the author is Lee Mandel, and Lee joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Lee. Um, Hi, Steve. Thanks for having me. Well, this gives a fictional uh, kind of a treatment to the reality of the Russian Revolution. So before we get into the details, characters, and plots, tell us why you wrote the book. Well, I've always been interested in history. In fact, my hobby is writing and researching in history. In my last several ships, I'm an officer in the Navy. I've become the ship's historian. And when I read this book several years ago called The Last Tsar by a Russian historian, I originally, and this was 1992-93, envisioned writing sort of a fictional novel that would involve the Romanovs, the last Tsar, the uh, assassination of the royal family, and a possible rescue attempt injecting, if you will, foreign agents. And I played around this idea for years. I never really put pen to paper for several years after that. But uh, it's my interest in history in that early part of the 20th century, particularly around the Russian Revolution, I always found totally fascinating. So you decided to create this main character, the protagonist, a Lieutenant Stephen Morrison, and inject him into history. Yes, um, in fact, books like, if you're familiar with the works of Herman Woke, who's my favorite author, who among his many books like The Cane Mutiny, but The Winds of War and The War in Remembrance, the, its sequel, they're basically the stories of the, the lead-up to World War II and World War II framed around a fictitious naval family, and that was sort of my inspiration to use that idea only to tell the story of the Russian Revolution around a fictional protagonist. So the book is broken down into three sections... And you call them uh, book one, book two, book three. Yes. It involves, really quite exciting when you think of the historical side to this, especially like in book one where Theodore Roosevelt is basically the negotiator, right, between Japan and Russia because they're having a war. And he's trying to figure out how to bring them together and end the war and you solve it for him. <laughs> well, if only life were that. That's right. If he'd only called you. He, I, I tell you, I would have helped him tremendously. <laughs> That's right. So, uh, so tell us about how Lieutenant Stephen Morrison gets involved in this real situation. Well, when Theodore Roosevelt was trying to set up this peace conference, which became known as the Portsmouth Peace Conference in 1905, he did learn that the Russians were going to be very obstinate. They were going to be very difficult to deal with even though, in fact, they were losing this war. I mean, it was a terrible slaughter on both sides, but particularly the Russians. So I got the idea of Theodore Roosevelt preparing for this conference, asking to be briefed by some of his staff, you know, someone who has a knowledge of Russia, who's familiar with the politics, and, and, and what happens, he gets briefed by this aide to the Secretary of the Navy named Lieutenant Stephen Morrison. And shortly thereafter, he gets approached by the British, who realize that... Uh, by, they, have been, they, too, have been approached by Sergei Witte, who's the prime minister of Russia, who reveals that, look, he says, we're on the verge of a coup d'etat in Russia. The Tsar has to be removed, because if he's not, he is not going to agree to a Duma, what we would call a Congress. Uh, he's going to continue his autocratic rule, and Russia's going to continue to slide into chaos. They had their first real revolution in 1905, and it was cut short when the Tsar really agreed to grant this Duma. So the British convinced President Roosevelt that if they'll send an agent to work with their agent, who happens to be Sidney Riley, the real British agent in real life, the, who's known as Ace of Spies, 
they would attempt to kidnap the czar, remove him out there, and let a coup d'etat or change of government take place. But the plan really goes awry when the czar changed his mind, as he did actually in real life, and decided to grant a limited Duma. So they had to abort the mission, which made Morrison and Riley both expendable, and they get arrested. Uh, basically, they got informed on by the Okrana, which is secret police in Russia, uh, by a tip. And the mission gets aborted, and Riley, and, well, Riley escapes, but Morrison, in fact, is taken prisoner and is uh, scheduled to be hung as a foreign conspirator. I mean, the book one ends, though, with a little bit of a twist, uh, without going into a ton of detail, but while he's in prison, he kills this guard who the warden really kind of wanted out of there, too, and rewards him by switching his identity and says, I'm going to send you to Solovetsky Island, which was probably the first czarist labor camp uh, in place of the, the person who they were scheduled to do, sort of almost to thank him for eliminating this guard. And the guy who they were sending was the guy who led the famous Potemkin mutiny in 1905, which was made into a famous movie in real life and all that. And he sort of sends him in his place. So here we have Stephen Mars, an American who speaks fluent Russian, who's actually born in Russia. He's the son of a, believe it or not, of a rabbi who emigrates to Russia in the United States, I'm sorry, in 1881. and here he is fluent in Russian and can pass for Russian, and they send him to this prison camp. And that's how book one ends, with him being sent to this prison camp. So it's the story of the mission, how it goes awry, and how Morrison, through a twist of fate, actually gets, if you will, a second chance. I suppose if you can call being sent to a prison camp for 10 years is a second chance, but that's how book one ends. Well, he's got, he's got to go there, or book two doesn't be, it isn't able to start. You betcha. I wouldn't have a heck of a book if I <laughs> had right. it written. Yeah. Uh, now, tell us more about Stephen Morrison. Tell us about his personality. He's an interesting character. He is a, a gentleman. He's a very intelligent young man and a very complex man. You know, in book two, which starts at his youth, at he's 13 years old, he experiences a a lot of anti-Semitism. Uh, he really does not fit in his old world, the world of his father, which is to live in, in the Lower East Side of New York, become a rabbi himself. He really wants to be uh, an American. He, as a young man coming to the United States, he dreamed of the American dream. He wanted to become a naval officer in the United States Navy, which eventually he does achieve that. And the book goes into how he becomes estranged from his family and eventually gets adopted by a congressman, Irish Catholic congressman in New York, and as the adopted son flourishes in school and ends up going to the United States Naval Academy in 1889. The uh, story tells about his trip, a graduation trip through Russia, where in fact he has his first contact with Tsar Nicholas when he was the Tsarevich, uh, uh, and a tour through uh, this, the what is now the Soviet Union, then Russia, and then his years at the Naval Academy, where he experiences a lot of uh, anti-Semitism, uh, graduates second in his class, and then becomes quite a proficient and excellent naval officer. But you can sense, as you read it, the growing controlled anger, the growing, the growing uh, I guess, desire to uh, fit in but not to fit in that drives the man. And the book, uh, too, ends actually as the war in Japan progresses between Japan and Russia, with him, his career increasingly uh, on the right track, I guess you would call fast track, and ultimately he becomes the uh, aide to the Secretary of the Navy, where he ends up briefing Roosevelt, as I described in Book One, and gets assigned the mission by Roosevelt. Now, also, simultaneously with this, in his trip 
throughout Russia when right after he graduates high school, he befriends the son of uh, the Putilov Metalworks, which was the biggest munitions builder in Russia at the time. And they become almost lifelong friends, and they correspond throughout the years. And the device I used uh, has been used before in literature to sort of almost chronicle the slide of Russia into chaos and revolution from the late 1880s throughout the early uh, 20th century are the series of letters from his friend Yuri, who describes what's going on in Russia. So you see the slide of Russia into anarchy as Stephen Morrison's career basically flourishes, and he volunteers for this mission almost against his better judgment. But again, it's his drive to, to do the ultimate, let's say, act that will get him is the acceptance that he subconsciously craves. And, of course, he gets assigned the mission, and that's the end of Book 2. And then Book 3 begins with him being sent to Solovetsky Island. And Solovetsky Island is this uh, prison camp. It exists in real life. It's a museum today, uh, which has been the home of political prisons of the Tsar since the times of Peter the Great. And there they think he's this guy, Moyak. They call him Moyak, which is Russian for sailor. And he's in solitary labor camp. He's in solitary, in essence, for two years, and he earns the right to be put in with the political prisoners. There, they see this guy who's this kind of a scary-looking guy, keeps to himself, but the guy who's already killed a, uh, a man uh, in the prison years before is basically at the point where he's not going to take off from anyone, and the Boers, uh, who are in the other barracks, the Boers Izakonye, which is Russian for the thieves-in-law, these are real people, and they exist today. Uh, that's sort of the criminal element. It's almost the Russian underworld. They try and control the camp. Well, he basically ends up controlling them through his violent nature. He kills a few of them, and the political prisoners, they call him Moyak, and they really look up to him and in a kind of a quirky sort of way, I guess. He finally is getting this kind of acceptance, admiration, all that he's craved his life, but by becoming a killer, really, when you think about it, to stay alive. And after his 10 years in prison, he is released. He goes back to St. Petersburg, which is now called Petrograd, and... He doesn't know what he's going to do. He runs into Riley again, who escaped from that original ambush. And he is, in essence, sort of forced to go to work for the Allies again because here he's in with all the Bolsheviks we met in prison. And he has an in with them, and the Allies assign him to go undercover to continue this Moyak identity, if you will. And he goes into, uh, is able to infiltrate Lenin's inner circle and becomes a spy for the Allies throughout the Russian takeover, the Bolshevik Revolution, the takeover leading up to the Russian Civil War, and it climaxes actually in 1918, the book, uh, with the uh, two co-joined plots, if you want. It was called the Lockhart Conspiracy, which truly existed. The head of the British uh, emissary to Russia was sort of involved in a plot to attempt to overthrow uh, the Bolshevik government, because the Allies obviously did not want the Bolsheviks to survive. And also, a lot of people don't realize this, but we had an invasion in 1919 uh, planned of Russia where we had, the, I think it was the British, the Americans, and the French sent a little allied force to land at Murmansk. And this was supposed to simultaneously occur, I'm sorry, in 1918, with the Lockhart attempt to overthrow the government. And also, this corresponds almost identically to when the royal family, the uh, Tsar and the Tsarina, the, Nicholas and Alexandra, were assassinated by the Bolsheviks. And that's sort of the climax, without going into too much more detail there, but the book climaxes at that point in history, taking a lot of real events that happened, but again, weaving Stephen Morrison, or Moyak as he's known in there, this uh, allied agent. I think it's pretty, it's pretty intense. Uh, people who've read the book, 
a lot of people have fed back to me and they said, wow, this is a real, the war days is a page turner. They couldn't stop reading. And I, I kind of wrote it that way, hoping that people would, would say, you know, finish one chapter and go, whoa, this is really interesting. I've got to see what happens next. So the feedback I've gotten has been pretty good, and I'm, I'm very pleased. And your history is accurate, and it's a, it sounds like a, a history book for the history lover at the same time. It's the, you know, it's the fiction thriller for the fiction lover. Yeah, I, I, that's a good description, Steve. I, I think that really hits the nail on the head. Uh, it is very historically accurate. I've taken a few liberties with dates. Uh, which really, more to fit the story, I mean, if, uh, for example, there's an incident in Japan with the Tsar that took place in 1891 where a Japanese fanatic attempted to uh, kill him, assassinate him for no reason, and Morrison is sort of involved in saving him at that time, which is the first time he meets the Tsar. Well, that actually, in my book, takes place in 1888 to fit the story. In real life, it took place in 1891. Uh, that's the kind okay, I took a few liberties there, but hopefully no one will mind that I did that, but, uh, to fit the story. And the most events, the Lockhart Conspiracy, Solovetsky Island, the descriptions, the description of St. Petersburg, uh, the Naval Academy at the turn of the century. Uh, I researched all of this, so it's pretty accurate. And most of the characters truly existed. Morrison, uh, his family, his wife, and some of the close contacts were composites of uh, people who existed in real life. But it was fun to have that liberty to take a real story insert a uh, fictional creation of mine, if you will, and um, the work seemed to flow. It really wasn't working. People said, wow, a 550-ish page book? That must have been a lot of work. And, and I'm honest when I say, really, it was kind of fun. I, I enjoy doing this. It, I didn't, it, again, it's a hobby of mine. I have, a, as I jokingly say, a day job uh, <laughs> in the Navy. It keeps me pretty busy. But um, it was fun. It was a labor of love. I enjoy doing it, and I'm very proud of it, and I hope people enjoy it. Well, does this thriller also have some romance in it? It has a little. Um, Morrison does uh, uh, meet a woman who becomes his wife. It's uh, there is yeah some romance. Is she in a it. spy too? Excuse me. Is she a spy too? No, 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 no. Uh, she is a uh, um, an American who he meets while he's the assistant to the Secretary of the Navy. Um, I do like. I'm kind of proud of this because I'm, I'm more of a in my early writing days and. In researching days, I was more of almost a jack web, you know, just the facts, you know, type of stuff. And I created, I think, a pretty nice relationship between he and his wife, the courtship, how they got married, uh, the relationship with the family, which is towards the end of book two. Uh, there's a lot of people in real life who I wove into their story. For example, believe it or not, George M. Cohan, you know, the Yankee Doodle Dandy, he's in the book. Uh, John Jacob Astor IV is another acquaintance. Uh, his wife, her father is based on a real character. His name is Oscar Levitt in the book, and he's a cabinet member to Theodore Roosevelt and was a former minister of the Ottoman Empire. He's based on a real character named Oscar Strauss. But the daughter, who's his wife, and, of course, Morrison are creations. But there's a lot of history of New York you'll see in there. They stay at the early Waldorf Astoria. They ride on the subway, which just opened in 1905. Uh, there's a lot of cool things. People say, God, you're like a walking encyclopedia. Well, again, I love the history. I love writing. I love researching. And the book just kind of flowed. And uh, it took me well, several years, but really it was about three years of concentrated effort. The original draft of book one, believe it or not, I wrote when I was the senior medical officer on the aircraft carrier, Harry S. Truman, about eight years ago. And I wrote the first.
first draft, emailed it home, and I forgot about it after the end of deployment. And I found it uh, about three years later on my hard drive, and I said, oh, yeah, I remember this one. And I was going to delete it, and I read it, and I said, hmm, that's, this isn't that bad. So I had my wife, Ann, read it, and she really liked it. She said, you ought to develop this story. This is good. Well, once I was assured, I have much more resources, books in my library, and, of course, better Internet connectivity to really make it, punch it up and make it a lot more accurate. And I, so I started writing book two, then three, and when I finished that, I went back and rewrote, to a large degree, book one. That's kind of, I guess, a little backwards, but that's how I did it. Well, Lee, tell us how to get your book. Well, it's available on iUniverse website, which is the publisher. It's also available on the Amazon.com website. It's available on Barnes & Noble website. And just for Grinzies, you know, since I've never published a book before, uh, I look on the web, and I there was a lot of booksellers, like I looked on ABE Books, if you will, which is a kind of an international bookseller that I've bought and uh, bought, I bought, I bought books in the past, and they sell it, they're selling it actually kind of all over the world. It, a lot of books are done, I guess, electronically on demand, so I, I suppose the companies contract with them, and the books are literally printed when you order them in some cases. So it's, it's available at a lot of websites, but the primary ones are the iUniverse site, the Amazon.com, and Barnes & Noble. Lee, thanks for being on iUniverse Radio. Very interesting. My pleasure. I really thank you, Steve, for having me. That was Lee Mandel. He is the author of his book, Moriak, a novel of the Russian Revolution. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. He's a diehard American. He's right, and he has the last name to prove it. He's Jason Wright, the host of The Right Side of the Aisle on TogiNet Radio. Jason is a father and self-made entrepreneur who turned a struggling East Texas real estate firm into a top-notch million-dollar company. Jason Wright loves America and is very concerned about where we are headed as a nation. He's dedicated to traditional American values. Jason Wright. Join us every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern for The Right Side of the Aisle on TogiNet.com. Maybe if I write a book, it will be the thing that keeps me alive. Those are the troubled words of a new 16-year-old author with her first thought-provoking book, What Gives? Published by Togi Entertainment. The author kept a diary during her dark teenage times, which turned into a 360-page suicide note with a happy ending. Texas Monthly describes teen author Chelsea Marie and her new book, What Gives? in this provocative way. We've plunged from page to page, not because of the young diarist's despondency. Depression is not especially attractive or compelling but because we are fascinated to see that while she is fending off demons on one hand, she is writing verse with the other. What Gives is available at whatgivesbook.com and national bookstores. Readers of What Gives are giving rave reviews. All social scientists, teachers, and students should use this book as a learning tool. What Gives is available at whatgivesbook.com and national bookstores. Welcome back. To iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, The Kicker of St. John's Wood, and the author is Gary Wolf, and Gary joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Gary. Hi, Steve. Uh, thanks for having me on. Good to have you on the show. Now, you call this conservative fiction. 
the kicker of St. John's Wood. We're going to go into the future, and we're going to take a serious look at, I guess, at our society and what's going to happen. Uh, you're talking about a meltdown through your futuristic novels, aren't you? Uh, that's correct, uh, Steve. Actually, the meltdown is that I portray in the novels is a result of a continuation of certain trends that we're facing today. And those trends are all around us. So we're all familiar with them. Uh, they go by the names of uh, political correctness and diversity and multiculturalism and uh, affirmative action, uh, global warming, uh, that whole uh, group of phenomena that we're also familiar with. I, I take it to its utmost extreme and show what a society would look like if it was completely and utterly ruled by that kind of mentality. So why write this book and why write these kinds of books? Because this isn't your first one. You have how many out already? Uh, this is my fifth novel. Your fifth. Uh, and the four of which are in this specific uh, genre. Uh, as far as uh, why write the book, uh, trying to uh, get people to think about these issues and uh, in, a, in, a, in a different kind of way. Uh, we have books, nonfiction books, that, uh, that are very well written, and we're all familiar with them, uh, that point out all these different trends. But to see it as fiction is something that I believe is more powerful, and it's something that has uh, unfortunately been ignored for a long time. You say there doesn't seem to be, since the likes of George Orwell or Ayn Rand, serious fiction that makes a mockery of socialism. Mm -hmm. So comment on that statement. Uh, certainly, yes. I think that uh, since that time, you would be since Orwell was writing, let us say, uh, and Anne Rand, uh, one would be hard pressed to find something that really fits into that category. Uh, perhaps you know of something uh, I don't uh, in the realm of fiction that tears uh, socialist thinking to shreds. Orwell, with his books, uh, 1984 and Animal Farm, was very, very effective, and we could. You just, one that just has to think of the impact on our society of those books and how current, how everybody knows about them and how it's become part of our thinking, fortunately, uh, to, to know what impact this kind of work can have. I don't see anything else uh, since then that, uh, that, really, uh, that really has the same message. So you take us to the year 2019, 10 years from now, mm -hmm. and you point out dangers, well, I guess uh, the, you're pointing out dangers today of what's going to be reality then, you're saying. Uh, yes, yes. And what, dangers, yes, sorry. What kind of reality do you think we're facing, or what's your book talking about, about these, this reality in 2019, 2020? It's talking about uh, political correctness gone out of control. One of, the, one of the features, one of the, the problems we face in our society today is the problem of, uh, of racism. And when I say that, I put racism in quotes. And what I mean is accusing everybody who doesn't agree with you uh, of being a racist. And, of course, I think that there are certain things in the news lately that, uh, that uh, demonstrate this problem. Yeah, that's going, going right on. Over 
going right over the top, isn't it? It's just amazing how how that's dominating the the news. Yes, it is. It's uh, it's very frightening because it's uh, essentially it's a it's a way of shutting down discussion and and uh, saying uh, you know you can't uh, talk about this or that or you can't challenge me on this or that issue because uh, you're a racist. It's just a it's a nyanya kind of word that uh, that that shuts down uh, dissent. Essentially, it makes dissent illegal, and uh, this is one of the themes in the Kicker of Saint John's Wood. Actually, the character, the main character, uh, who is telling the story, uh, his name is uh, Jayesh Blackstone, and he, uh, his father is American, a general sort of undefined American. His mother is from India, and he grows up in England, and uh, but he considers himself an American right from the beginning. And when he comes to, he doesn't live in America until he's 18 after high school. He went to the American school in London. He comes to America, and he's a football player, as you might imagine, a place kicker. And he is very disturbed by the fact that everybody wants to make him into an Asian. They don't let him be just American. He wants to just be a, a, a person. You know, he has his own personal connection to India or whatever, but they want to make him right away into a, uh, a representative of the third world and a person of color and all these things. And uh, he doesn't want that. He just wants to be an American. So this is a pressure, this kind of pressure on somebody who has any kind of other identity uh, to be just that identity and not to be American. This is a very a strong theme in the book. Now there's an interesting... I'm not exactly sure what it is. It's it's uh, what is his headquartered in Paris. What is the uh, the group called? Unsane. Unsane. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Spelled spelled U N S A I N E. So uh, you kind of took a little edge off it. (laughs) Right. Right. (laughs) But it's pronounced unsane. That's right. Yes, uh, UNSANE is a uh, a branch of the United Nations. The UN stands for United Nations in UNSANE. And uh, don't ask me to say what it is. <laughs> I hope I can uh, give you the full uh, acronym at the moment. Uh, but, uh, yes, uh, this is another aspect that's brought into the book, um, and that is that uh, certain people uh, in the uh, American uh, presidential administration are cooperating uh, with the UN to uh, shut down dissent in the United States, uh, because and specifically because it might it was racist or uh, otherwise not progressive, and uh, this unsane and uh, and the particular character who happens to be from India uh, is trying to approach Jayesh Blackstone, the our, our hero, to get him. To be uh, on their side and to fight the fight uh, against uh, against America, and uh, of course, uh, well, I don't want to give away too much, but uh, we can say that our main uh, character uh, is not too pleased with that, and uh, he has to go to Paris uh, on a couple of occasions in the book to uh, to do battle with this organization on Seine. Now, who is Ashley? Ashley is uh, Jayesh's girlfriend. Does she play and, a major uh, role in the book? She has, she does have a major role in the book, and it becomes greater as the book goes on. Uh, Ashley is a, an interesting character. 
she is a, she starts the book off as an ultra feminist and uh she is uh, writing her dissertation it turns out she's a graduate student she's writing her dissertation on the uh influence of uh christian fundamentalism on professional sports and uh she is uh, very perturbed that there are no women players in professional football in the NFL so, uh, but <laughs> she, uh, things change over the course of the book, and that's, I think, another interesting aspect. Well, there has to be the antagonist, there has to be the bad guy, or the bad group, or the bad, bad girl. Uh, tell us about that side of your story. The, uh, the antagonist? Well, there's, let's see, there's, I wouldn't call uh, Ashley uh, one of the antagonists, although... She's sort of on the fence a little bit in the beginning, but I wouldn't wouldn't necessarily put her in that category. Um, one of the great, the, the two major antagonists, I would say, one is that uh, that I already alluded to, um, uh, the, the gentleman who is the chairman of Unsane, is definitely uh, a bad guy, and uh, also uh, the president of the United States, who is uh, a woman named uh, Malpam. Vesica Malpam, and uh, she is uh, very, very uh, strongly trying to shut down dissent in cooperation with uh, this, uh, with Unsane and with others. So I would say uh, the two of them are pretty much, uh, they're pretty much leading the antagonist list. Now you talk about a uh, an important chapter that happens in London where where Jayesh and Ashley go to visit his sister, Julie, and her family. Uh, just give us a little bit of a flavor, a little feeling of the, of the moment in, in, in your book. Well, this is important uh, for a couple of reasons. One is that it, it, it signifies a turning point in the relationship between Jayesh and Ashley. Uh, they become much closer there. Uh, also, uh, Jayesh has a chance to, to talk to his uh, sister, uh, who, with whom he is very close, and uh, they get to settle uh, a few uh, family matters and uh, talk about uh, various things. And also, uh, his sister, whose name is Julie, uh, likes Ashley very much and uh, puts Jayesh's mind at ease about a few things, enabling him to go forward uh, with the relationship. Uh, but there's also uh, a couple of uh, opportunities to see uh, more political correctness run wild. They have uh, in their house, actually, they're sort of an upper-middle-class family in London, and uh, the the brother-in-law fancies himself as a sort of upper-class person, a British person, but it doesn't quite make it to that level. Um, And he has some interesting things in his house. I won't give anything away, but I think it's a a funny part of the book where... uh, they go into the house and they see these various uh, ridiculous things uh, that are uh, connected with um, environmentalism uh, gone wild. Well, that's just fiction, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's fiction uh, in certain ways, but not in others. <laughs> well, that's for sure. So you, you obviously are very opinionated about what's going on in this country and what's going on in the world. Mm-hmm. So how much of what's going on right now is, is in this story? I mean, what, do you, or what are you trying to accomplish here? 
Well, I think that uh, it, it should be clear to, to the reader that uh, we're talking about, like when you said, you know, is this, is this fiction or is it not, we're talking about what's going on today, but just with an extra little twist, with an extra little bit thrown in uh, to give us an inkling of where this is going. Because, you know, it's one thing to see these various things t- taking place, like we, we discussed before with the with the allegations of racism, a racist under every bed that's happening. Everybody sees that going on, but I think that in the book uh, it brings to light what possibly could happen, the scenarios that, that lie in the future, in the near future, if we don't put a stop to it. And, and for people to realize that there are very, very great dangers. And when totalitarianism uh, seizes hold of a country, like it's done so many times in, in, in recent memory, in the 20th century even, especially, uh, that there are, it doesn't happen overnight. It's not like we're in a completely free society and the next day we wake up and, oh, there's a dictator. No, it happens in stages. It happens insidiously. That there's a, a bit here and a bit there. And so the big connection that has to be made is here are the warning signs on one side, and here's the result on the other. But one thing does lead to another if we don't wake up. And you feel that 2019 may be too far out. It may be happening sooner than that. Uh, it might very well be. It, it, it's very hard to predict uh, the future, of course. But, uh, yes, I think that I was trying to be uh, uh, conservative, if you will, on my data estimate and saying, you know, I don't want to make it too extreme, but... Um, being, I think, uh, in the last year or so since I've written the book, I really uh, events have gone much faster than than, than I uh, anticipated they would, and so therefore, yes, that date might be a little bit too far uh, too far out, and uh, we face very grave dangers right at the moment. Now, what part does this fictitious country, this tiny country, play in this that was carved out of India? Right. This is. Uh, Sundar Prabhat, which is a, uh, a fictional, as you mentioned, a fictional, very tiny country that was pulled, it was uh, carved out of India. Well, one one um, role that it plays in the book is that it's the headquarters, so to speak, of, or, or I should say, the uh, the nest of uh, this character Azala, who is the chairman of Unsane. So it's sort of a, it gives a, a, an, it gives an image of of what in the third world uh, corresponds to the uh, the problems that we're talking about here in the United States. So it's important for that. And uh, it's important for Jayesh personally uh, because he goes there and he, he starts to get more in touch with his Indian heritage. And, uh, and Azala tries to capitalize on that to get him to consider himself to be an Asian first and not an American. And uh, so it's important also in that aspect. And there's also another a major character in the book who comes from there and is introduced at that point. Well, Gary, give us some just some con- concluding thoughts about your book. Uh, well, I think that uh, one thing I would like to emphasize is that, uh, as we said sort of in the beginning of the interview, uh, there's not a lot of this going on. And that... that Concerns me. Uh, it concerns me that uh, people are not aware enough of fiction as being 
um, an important vehicle for portraying uh, these uh, these ideas, for conveying these ideas. This is something that I tried to do in all in, in my various books, and I think that I think that it would be very interesting to your listeners to have a sample of this because it's something that is just not seen today. And uh, I, I I'm happy that. I, I'm sort of proud that I'm the one who's providing this, but I'm also dismayed that there's not more of it going on. But I think from a personal point of view, in terms of the reader, the potential reader and the listeners, uh, I would encourage them to go out and, and check out the book just to see what this kind of genre looks like and to think that, uh, hey, perhaps uh, this is something we should be asking for that we'd like to see more of. From, from from other writers. And we can check out your book on your website. Tell us about that. Uh, yes, you can certainly check it out. Uh, my website is uh, awolcivilization.com. That's A-W-O-L, and then the word civilization.com. Uh, I uh, am currently, I have very various things going on on the website, but uh, currently for the last uh, few months I've been doing political satire. Once a week I post some political satire. I think that would be fun uh, for people to check out. Also, when you get to the site, uh, you'll see that uh, there are up on the top on the side uh, pictures of the various, uh, of three of my books at the moment, including The Kicker of St. John's Wood. If you click one of those pictures, then you'll see a summary of the book, and you'll also have the opportunity to read the first chapter right there online. Oh, great. Uh, before, you know, you don't have to order the book, you don't have right. to say anything. You just you can read the first chapter and see if you like it right there. And where do we get your book, besides the website? Uh, you can, the ordering information is right there, but essentially uh, it's available for sale on all the major online retailers. Uh, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, uh, Books A Million, all of those uh, retailers uh, carry the book. And, of course, iUniverse.com as well. Absolutely. Well, Gary, thank you for being on iUniverse Radio. We appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. That was Gary Wolf. He is the author of his book, The Kicker of St. John's Wood. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by Toginet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.